Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. The head of Homeland Security visits the U.S.-Mexico border while lawmakers weigh in on solutions and who's to blame for the border crisis. A state senator in Arizona says the voting strength of residents was diluted and their constitutional rights were violated. He's suing Katie Hobbs and Maricopa County officials. The FBI possibly violating First Amendment rights. That's what some legal experts are now reportedly saying after journalists released the so-called Twitter files. U.S. prosecutors unseal the indictment against FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried. Find out what charges he's facing in a case the new company's CEO calls plain old embezzlement. Department of Homeland Security head Alejandro Mayorkas visited the U.S.-Mexico border yesterday. His stop comes as House Republicans want to impeach him over the border crisis. Entity's Jessica Beatty reports. DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas visited Border Patrol agents in El Paso, Texas, Tuesday. At the same time, a group of House Republicans called for Mayorkas to be impeached over the border crisis. He has no plan to deport the more than a million people who have active deportation orders in our country. He has no plan to secure the border. Congressman Andy Biggs said the law is clear. Illegal immigrants should be detained. He accused Mayorkas of instead releasing more than one million illegal border crossers into the country. Most of these released illegal aliens will never be heard from again. We don't know where they are, what they're doing. That's unacceptable. The 2022 fiscal year had a record high number of encounters with illegal border crossers, over 2,300,000. We reached out to DHS for comment, but didn't immediately hear back. Democrat lawmakers near the border are also concerned. Congresswoman Veronica Escobar says Congress is to blame for not passing an immigration bill since 1996. And she says that one limited legal pathways. Congress and um, administrations before the Biden administration have chosen to address immigration as a border-only issue. Dealing with immigration as a border-only issue has created the humanitarian crisis that we face today. Now Texas officials are worried the border crisis will get even worse after Title 42 is lifted. The policy, aimed at stopping the spread of COVID-19, allowed officials to turn away illegal immigrants at the border. Last month, a federal judge ordered the government to do away with it. We have to secure the border because the only thing that the Border Patrol is doing is processing a lot of them to come into the U.S. and then returning some of them under Title 42. If Title 42 goes away, this is going to just open up uh, a lot of large numbers of people coming to border communities. CNN reports that every day over the weekend, more than 2,400 illegal immigrants entered El Paso alone. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. An Arizona state senator, plus several voters in Mojave County, filed a lawsuit against Governor-elect Katie Hobbs and Maricopa County officials. The lawsuit focuses on the November 8th midterm elections. NTD's Daniel Monahan has the story. The lawsuit was filed by State Senator Sonny Borelli in the Mojave County Superior Court. It is backed by the Mojave Republican Party. The defendants are Katie Hobbs, who is also the top election official in Arizona, as well as Maricopa recorder Stephen Richer, 
Maricopa Board of Supervisors Chairman Bill Gates and other members of the board. The lawsuit aims to nullify the results of the November 8th gubernatorial election in Maricopa County. A similar legal challenge was filed last week by GOP gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake. My lawsuit includes a declaration from a whistleblower from Runbeck claiming that nearly 300,000 ballots with no chain of custody were counted, infecting the legal vote count. Lake says the election laws and rules clearly state that they should not have been counted at all. She says that there are also additional witnesses of what she calls botched elections. Other whistleblowers came forward to declare under threat of perjury that tens of thousands of ballots did not pass the signature verification process set up to keep illegal ballots out. Lake says the rejected ballots were counted anyways. Moreover, she alleges that 25,000 ballots, quote, appeared out of nowhere two days after Election Day. The suit by State Senator Borelli alleges that the voting strength of residents in Mojave County, Arizona, was diluted and their constitutional rights were violated. It further states that multiple systemic failures in the conduct of the election in Maricopa County, Arizona, were the culprit. Maricopa County Supervisor Steve Gallardo, a Democrat, criticized Borelli's filing on Twitter. He accused Borelli of, quote, using our judicial system to continue the frivolous and ridiculous efforts to undermine our democracy. He says the lawsuit is, in his words, wasting the taxpayers' dollars and the court's time on unfounded conspiracy. Meanwhile, Katie Hobbs wrote on Twitter yesterday that, quote, in this election, we chose solving our problems over conspiracy theories and sanity over chaos. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Next, we get some analysis on yesterday's hearing over Arizona gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake's election lawsuit. The filing is asking the judge to declare Lake the winner over Governor-elect Katie Hobbs or at least order a recount in Maricopa County where Lake claims voters were disenfranchised. Joining us now is Epic Times contributor and former senior advisor and counsel to President Donald Trump, Jenna Ellis. It's a pleasure speaking with you today, Jenna. Great to join you. Thank you. A two-day trial has been agreed upon over Lake's election lawsuit. A lawyer representing the Secretary of State's office said pushing this back any further will threaten the transition of power right after New Year's. What can we expect from this trial, and do you think two days is enough time? Well, it's interesting that Katie Hobbs is more concerned about the uh, transition of power than a free and fair election and making sure that the results are fair and accurate. Uh, that seems to be everyone's primary concern if we care about democracy and the Constitution in this country. And so I think this is a great uh, step forward that this judge is taking the petition from Carrie Lake very seriously and said that uh, you know, there is sufficient evidence here and uh, there's a lot of evidence. And what she's alleging, of course, is that the margin of error, which is about 17, uh, or the margin of victory, rather, which is the uh, about 17,000 ballots, uh, that there are more ballots than that. She alleges about 135,000 ballots that may have been counted illegally or uh, uh, not according to state law. And so for a two-day trial in this uh, very short time frame, at least she's getting a trial on the merits, uh, regardless of whether or not that's exactly enough time or the judge ultimately ends up extending that uh, time frame. If there needs to be more uh, presentation of evidence or additional arguments. Two days, in my view, is at least a huge threshold victory. And thanks for helping us understand this time frame. Now, Maricopa County is pushing back on a request by Lake's attorneys to access the ballots. How critical is that access? 
It's incredibly critical because, of course, it will be Lake's burden of proof to show at trial that there were uh, sufficient ballots that were over that margin of victory that were counted illegally. So for Maricopa County to not provide uh, this data to Lake is a really interference in, in that presentation. But I think that it just shows that election officials are anti-Republican in the sense that they are trying intentionally to thwart these types of challenges. And what makes you say that, that they're anti-Republican? Well, because um, we've seen that these types of election officials are specifically not providing evidence to Republican candidates that are mounting these sorts of election challenges. This is exactly what we saw in the 2020 election with Donald Trump. This is what we've seen in other uh, in other instances where Republicans have mounted challenges. And it seems like when Democrats challenge, not only does the mainstream media ultimately help them and say that's totally fine, but also local election officials are not nearly as hesitant to provide that type of data. Now, I want to go back to what you said about the judge here. After the hearing, Lake said in a statement that it was telling. She said the judge noted the volume of her evidence the team compiled. Based on what Lake has said, do you think this will be sufficient in making her case? Well, it all depends on what she can present at trial. And based just on the petition with saying that there was uh, a faulty signature matching on envelopes and other issues with at least 135,000 ballots, if she can show uh, even anywhere close to that number of ballots, then that rises above the level of the margin of victory for Hobbs. And so what the remedy would actually be, uh, that ultimately um, is a question that I'm very interested in to see if the judge uh, handles that in terms of uh, providing a process for a new election, which is what Carrie Lake has suggested, or how they would proceed if she ultimately does show at trial um, and fulfills that burden of proof and shows that there were more ballots counted illegally than the margin of victory. Excellent to have your analysis. Epic Times contributor and former senior advisor and counsel to President Donald Trump, Jenna Ellis, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. U.S. prosecutors unsealed the indictment against founder and former CEO of FTX Sam Bankman-Fried yesterday. Charges include wire fraud, conspiracy, and violating campaign finance laws. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg tells us more about the ongoing investigation. This is one of the biggest financial frauds in American history. The U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, Damian Williams, revealed the contents of the indictment against Bankman-Fried on Tuesday. Eight criminal counts including wire fraud, conspiracy, and campaign finance violations. He accused Bankman Freed and co-conspirators of stealing billions of dollars from customers and using that money for personal benefit and investments, as well as to cover expenses and debts of FTX's investment arm Alameda Research. He says Bankman Freed lied to Alameda lenders about the source of the money used to pay those debts and deceived FTX investors by sending billions of dollars in FTX customer money to Alameda. We charge that Bankman-Fried violated federal campaign finance laws by causing tens of millions of dollars in illegal campaign contributions to be made to candidates and committees. Williams says the contributions were disguised to look like they were coming from wealthy co-conspirators when in fact they were funded by Alameda Research with stolen customer money. Bankman-Fried was the second largest individual donor to the Democratic Party in this year's election cycle after George Soros. He provided Democrats with around $40 million. Prosecutors allege that Bankman-Fried made donations to campaigns under other people's names. That allowed him to illegally donate far above the $25,000 set by U.S. campaign finance laws. 
Williams encouraged anyone who participated in wrongdoing at FTX or Alameda Research to come forward. To any person, entity, or political campaign that has received stolen customer money, we ask that you work with us to return that money to the innocent victims. Come see us before we come see you. Bankman Freed contributed at least $5 million to President Biden's 2020 campaign. This case is about fraud. Fraud is fraud. It does not matter the complexity of the investment scheme. It does not matter the amount of money involved. If you mislead and deceive to take what does not belong to you, we will hold you accountable. Before his arrest, Bankman Freed was scheduled to testify before U.S. lawmakers on the House Financial Services Committee. The hearing went ahead anyway, with FTX's new CEO, John Ray, as the main witness. Ray is a longtime corporate restructuring expert with 40 years of experience. He says the situation at FTX was worse than what he found at Enron two decades ago. Enron was one of the biggest corporate frauds in U.S. history. The FTX group's collapse appears to stem from absolute concentration of control in the hands of a small group of grossly inexperienced, non-sophisticated individuals who failed to implement virtually any of the systems or controls that are necessary for a company entrusted with other people's money or assets. Ray was tapped to lead the defunct exchange last month and oversee the bankruptcy. He told members of Congress that FTX lost $8 billion of client money. This is really old-fashioned embezzlement. Bankman Freed appeared at the Bahamas Magistrates Court in Nassau on Tuesday. He told the court he would fight extradition to the United States. The judge denied his request for bail and sent him to a local correctional facility instead, citing a great risk of flight. Bankman Freed faces a maximum sentence of 115 years in prison if convicted on all eight counts. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Several lawmakers have publicly said they'll return donations from Bankman Freed or redirect them to charities. White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre declined to answer if President Biden will return any donations when asked yesterday. She asserted that she's covered by the Hatch Act and referred anyone with questions about political contributions to the DNC. Another twist in the crypto world, investors withdrew as much as $3 billion from Binance, the world's biggest cryptocurrency exchange, on Tuesday. A report about an ongoing U.S. Justice Department investigation into the exchange was reportedly a factor in investors' nervousness. It comes as investors are dealing with a huge blow from the fall of smaller rival FTX, which declared bankruptcy in November. Its founder, Sam Bankman-Fried, was arrested in the Bahamas this week. Binance had initially offered to help bail out FTX before pulling out of the deal last month. The Justice Department announced that the largest bank in Denmark has pleaded guilty to defrauding American banks and will forfeit $2 billion. Danske Bank also agreed to a separate settlement with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission and will pay over $400 million to settle charges. The bank also settled with Danish authorities. The agreement with the United States settles a long-running investigation into billions of dollars in illicit payments. The case has plagued the company for nearly five years and was part of one of the largest ever money laundering scandals. Prosecutors allege the bank lied about their customers in Estonia and anti-money laundering controls. As a result, U.S. banks accepted $160 billion from high-risk clients outside of Estonia. Officials are still investigating the case. Multiple legal experts are reportedly saying the FBI may have violated First Amendment rights by allegedly colluding with big tech. That comes after journalists released multiple installments of the so-called Twitter files. 
Journalist Matt Taibbi last week released an installment of the so-called Twitter files, allegedly revealing that Twitter's former head of safety, Yoel Roth, not only met weekly with the FBI and DHS, but with the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. The files also show that weeks before the 2020 presidential election, the FBI flagged certain tweets to the social media company. One of those, for example, was about possible irregularities in the voting process. Twitter reportedly decided to add a learn how voting is safe and secure label to the tweet after the FBI flagged it. That installment of the Twitter files also shows Twitter's current policy director, Nick Pickles, allegedly working with the FBI and DHS. A senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation told Fox News that Twitter can suppress a tweet since it's a private company, but only if Twitter is acting on its own. However, he said, quote, when a private company is censoring information based on direction, coordination and cooperation with the government, then legally it may be considered to be acting as an agent for the government and it may be found to be violating the First Amendment. A senior distinguished fellow at the University of St. Thomas School of Law told the outlet, we now know that the intelligence community interacted on a regular basis with Twitter and other platforms, seemingly to advise them to monitor what the IC considered objectionable content. He said the next Congress should make it a priority to investigate contacts between the intelligence community and the platforms to see if government censorship took place. Various Republicans in Congress reportedly indicated that they would be in support of such an investigation. Senator Cynthia Loomis told Fox that the accumulation of accusations pointed at the FBI's Washington, D.C. Bureau, I think, make it ripe for serious investigation by Congress. National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby reportedly said on Sunday that the Biden administration is not telling social media companies how they should handle their content. Coming up, a huge storm sweeps across the nation, sending tornadoes through Oklahoma, Louisiana and Texas, and blizzard conditions farther north. We have the details, including two casualties. And a judge extended a previous order delaying a key part of Oregon's new gun law, and he's considering blocking more of it. More in just a moment, here on NTD News Today. A massive storm is sweeping across the U.S. It's kicked off tornadoes in Oklahoma, Louisiana, and Texas. A mother and young boy were reported dead. The pair were from Louisiana. The mother was found dead one street from her home and her son about a half mile away. The home was demolished by the storm. In another Louisiana town, about 20 people went to the hospital with injuries. In Texas, five tornadoes were confirmed, but there were potentially a dozen. Homes and businesses were damaged north of the Dallas-Fort Worth area. The storm also caused blizzard-like conditions across Great Plains states. According to the National Weather Service, Montana, Colorado, and Nebraska saw as much as two feet of snow. Interstates closed early this morning across the plains as winds reached over 50 miles per hour. Now Minnesota is also bracing for up to two feet of snow, and authorities recently warned of a large tornado in Mississippi. More severe weather is expected to impact central Gulf Coast states. Local officials in Kansas say the cleanup of the spill from the Keystone Pipeline will take a few more weeks. The pipeline carries crude oil from Canada to multiple U.S. states. 
It's not yet known when the pipeline will resume operations. It was shut down on December 8th after the spill of nearly 14,000 barrels of crude at a location in Kansas. The volume of crude oil released makes it one of the most significant crude spills in the United States in almost a decade. The pipeline distributes over 620,000 barrels of heavy Canadian oil daily from Canada to refineries in the United States. Canada-based TC Energy said in a Tuesday update that the pipeline's problematic segment has been isolated and the downstream flow of spilled oil has been stopped. The cause of the leak has not yet been identified, but sabotage has been ruled out. Adjustments might be on the way to the U.S. naturalization exam. That's the test that plays a major step toward an immigrant's path to becoming a U.S. citizen. The Biden White House signed an executive order with a directive that calls for a review and changes to the English and civic sections of the exam. The reading and writing sections, which are standardized, will remain the same. A five-month-long trial of this updated test will be performed in 2023 with more than 1,000 volunteers already enrolled in the citizenship class. U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services says more than 1 million people became U.S. citizens during fiscal year 2022, a level not seen in over a decade. Oregon Governor Kate Brown is commuting all 17 of the state's death sentences. She made the announcement yesterday. Brown says the inmates that were awaiting execution will have their sentences changed to life in prison without the possibility of parole. The Democrat governor has less than a month left in office. Her order will take effect today. Brown says she was using her executive clemency powers to commute the sentences. She calls the death penalty immoral and an irreversible punishment that doesn't allow for correction. Brown said in her statement that victims experience pain and uncertainty as they wait for decades until the penalties are carried out. She hopes her move will be a significant step closer to finality in these cases. Oregon voters reinstated the death penalty by popular vote in 1978, 14 years after they abolished it. The Oregon Supreme Court declared it unconstitutional in 1981. Oregon voters then reinstated it in 1984. A key part of Oregon's new gun law will remain blocked for a little longer. The judge extended his previous order yesterday and heard lengthy arguments on whether to block another part of the law. The judge already blocked the permit to purchase provision until February to give law enforcement time to organize the required training classes. He also temporarily blocked another provision that prevents a gun sale until the results of a background check come back. Under current federal law, a gun sale can proceed by default if the background check takes longer than three business days. Some point out that this allowed a mass shooter to obtain a gun in 2015, while others are concerned background checks could be delayed indefinitely to prevent purchases. The judge continued to hear arguments Tuesday on the most controversial part of the law, a ban on the sale, transfer, or import of gun magazines containing more than 10 rounds. One gun store owner testified that he estimates this could be interpreted to make 90% of guns illegal to sell in the state. The remains of a body found in the early 90s have finally been identified. In a Tuesday press conference, authorities announced the skeletal remains were of Robert A. Mullins of Columbus, Ohio. The identification brings closure to Mullins' family, who says he went missing in the late 80s. Authorities say they were able to identify him using forensic genealogy. We built an expansive family tree containing over 4,000 people. Our research stretched into Virginia, Kentucky, Canada, and all the way to England. 
Along the way, we had the help of many distant cousins, relatives of the unidentified man. Homicide investigators say Mullen's case remains open. The Alaska Department of Public Safety is mourning the loss of one of their own who died on Tuesday. Court Services Officer Curtis Warland was trying to scare away a group of muskox from a dog kennel near his home when one of the muskox attacked him. He died at the scene. The accident is currently under investigation. Warland served as a court services officer for 13 years. Major shipping deadlines for holiday deliveries are just days away, and holiday volume and winter weather will put the big carriers to the test. If you're sending gifts across the country or to service members stationed abroad, key details about when and how to send packages can make a big difference. Here are some tips from the major shippers. This guy handles his own last-minute shipping. The rest of us have deadlines. The longer you wait, the more limited your choice of shipping becomes. For delivery by December 25th, the United States Postal Service says the recommended deadline for ground service packages and first-class mail, like greeting cards, is Saturday, December 17th. Priority mail, Monday, December 19th. Everybody wants to get those holiday greetings and gifts in the mail. So be patient with the retail clerks. Be patient with your carrier. Spokesperson Kim Frum says the Postal Service YouTube channel has how-to videos on topics like properly packing a box and addressing a package to a military service member. She also says if you're planning to wrap the outside of your shipping boxes in brown paper or anything else, don't. No brown paper packages, no tied up with string. Do not do that because it, you could run the risk of things getting caught in the machinery. UPS used a streamlined digital process to hire for 100,000 seasonal openings. This is our Super Bowl and we are excited. For UPS, the last day to ship second day air is Wednesday, December 21st. Next day air, Thursday the 22nd. Darren Jones of UPS says their operations are ready for whatever Mother Nature brings. The good news is, is that we've been doing this for 115 years, so we know a little bit about what we're doing here. For FedEx Express Saver shipments, the deadline is Tuesday, December 20th. FedEx same day, Friday, December 23rd. And with all major carriers, the closer to December 25th, the more expensive expedited delivery options will be. Coming up, another round of anti-lockdown protests erupting across universities in China. Video showing upset students facing off with officials. The Chinese regime is moving away from a COVID-19 tracking app and appears to be loosening some of the harsh measures. However, a new outbreak is spreading in the country. We'll have the details soon when we return. Welcome back. The U.S. Space Force launches a new unit in Korea. It's aimed at helping the Allies better counter North Korea's evolving nuclear and missile threats. The activation here today of U.S. Space Force Korea, a subcomponent of U.S. Space Force's Indo-Pacific, enhances our ability to defend the homelands and to ensure peace and security on the Korean Peninsula and in Northeast Asia. The U.S. Space Force's Korea is the second overseas component of the Space Force. It's tasked with monitoring, detecting, and tracking incoming missiles, as well as bolstering the military's overall space capability. The U.S. Force's Korea commander hosted a ceremony at Osan Air Base in South Korea to mark the creation of the unit. He also conferred leadership of the unit on Lieutenant Colonel Joshua McCullion. 
The Space Force is a new branch of the military opened during the Trump administration. It expanded upon the previous Air Force Space Command. The launch of the unit comes as Seoul and Washington seek to boost security cooperation to deter North Korea, which this year tested intercontinental ballistic missiles capable of reaching the U.S. mainland. Chinese citizens in Afghanistan have been urged to leave the country as soon as possible. It follows a terrorist attack on a Chinese-owned hotel in central Kabul on Monday. The terrorist IS group, which rivals the Taliban, has claimed responsibility for the attack. Three assailants died in the attack, and at least two hotel guests were injured trying to jump out of a window after residents reported explosions and gunfire. All roads leading to the site were blocked by Taliban forces. The Chinese embassy has dispatched teams to the site and has demanded a thorough investigation into the attack. Inspired by rare protests against zero COVID-19 rules, students across China also voicing concerns about virus policies at their universities. Entity's Xiaohua Li has the story. In at least five Chinese provinces, students from local medical schools gathered outside their campuses on Monday. They're taking aim at some of their university's epidemic prevention policies. Under them, medical graduates who test positive for COVID-19 reportedly are now allowed to take days off. And if they do, they face a pay cut. Graduate students from these universities earn an average of less than $200 a month, while faculty members are paid eight times that amount. As for the undergrads, they're asking permission to return home voluntarily. This is due to continued virus testing on campus and a lack of supplies in some dormitories. Violence broke out at another medical university in southwest China. That was captured after students protested against the school for not paying them or providing masks. At the same time in China, fears are rising about the safety of student protesters amid arrests. Police apprehended a resident from Guangzhou last week over allegations they called provoking trouble. That's after the resident took part in rallies against COVID-19 restrictions in the city last month. And an artist from eastern China arrested by police under the same allegation. That's for painting and tweeting a portrait of a well-known anti-lockdown protester in China. The protester dubbed the bridge man on a protest banner from a Beijing overpass in October, calling on communist leader Xi Jinping to step down. Xiao Hua Li, NTD News. After major protests in China, the regime appears to be loosening some of its harsh COVID-19 measures, including the use of one COVID tracking app. However, a new COVID outbreak is spreading in the country. Here's Entity's Tiffany Meyer with the story. A major contact tracing app in China is going offline. It marks a big step in loosening COVID-19 restrictions. But it's far from the only health tracking method used during the pandemic. The app is called Mobile Itinerary Card. It launched in February 2020, almost immediately after the pandemic broke out in Wuhan, China. Operating via smartphones, the app can trace back where a phone owner has been in the last 7 to 14 days. When an app user enters an area designated by authorities as posing high risk of infection, the app would change the user's status color from green to yellow or red. 
Both of those colors limit the phone owner's access to public spaces and transportation. Other reports say Chinese authorities manipulated the apps manually, changing the statuses of human rights activists to red to block them from leaving their homes. This app has more than one billion users, almost as many as China's population. Concerns have also focused on data safety and privacy, as huge amounts of data have been collected in recent years. Chinese authorities said they would delete the data after the app goes offline. Despite the shutdown, another major tracking app is still being used, the country's health code scanning system. This app also functions on smartphones. It uses the same three-color status system, but instead users self-declare where they've been. The easing of contact tracing methods comes as China braces against a new outbreak of the CCP virus which causes COVID-19. China recorded more than 36,000 cases across the country on Monday. But Radio Free Asia reported that within the last week, 220,000 people contracted the infection in Beijing, including medical staff from hundreds of hospitals in the city. Next, we zoom in on vaccines in China. Almost three years after the pandemic first broke out, China says it will allow a foreign vaccine to be used in China. But there's a catch. Beijing said Friday it would let German nationals living in China receive German vaccine BioNTech. This in exchange for Germany granting an import permit to a Chinese vaccine, though that jab would only be used on Chinese nationals living in Germany. BioNTech's distribution partner for China first applied for approval in the Chinese market two years ago. It had planned to import 100 million doses. But its approval for widespread use is still hanging in the balance. As for American nationals living in China, can they access vaccines? The American embassy in China says yes. Its official website names the two most commonly available doses as being available, Sinopharm and Sinovac. Neither of the two Chinese-made vaccines have been approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And just ahead, barricaded roads in northern Kosovo as unhappy local Serbs protest. U.S. and EU diplomats are urging calm. Belarus appears to be conducting joint military drills with Russia. Moscow claims that the exercises are being carried out day and night. More shortly here on NTD News Today. Envoys from the EU and the United States called on Kosovo and Serbia to remain calm and not fuel an ongoing ethnic crisis. This in Kosovo's north on Tuesday, where local Serbs have erected barricades on roads. Serb protesters in northern Kosovo blocked main roads after an exchange of fire with police over the weekend. It was triggered by the arrest of a former Serb police officer amid rising tensions between authorities and Kosovo's Serb minority. Tuesday marked the fourth day of blockades, and protesters have shown no sign they will remove trucks filled with gravel and other heavy machinery from main streets. Kosovo declared independence from Serbia in 2008, but Belgrade refuses to recognize the statehood of its former breakaway province. However, the countries are holding talks to normalize their relations under EU mediation, and Brussels has already put a plan forward. Here's the U.S. envoy for the Western Balkans, Gabriel Escobar. Well, we discussed 
the need for everyone to remain calm, the need for continued dialogue, the need for a focus, a renewed focus on the EU facilitated dialogue. Uh, but I also made clear our expectation that we will start talking about the implementation of the Association of Serb Municipalities. Uh, I made that very clear. My point is that uh, I'm a diplomat. For me, the much better way of removing the barricades is as a result of a political agreement. Some 50,000 Serbs who live in Kosovo's north refuse to recognize Kosovo's authority and are backed by Belgrade. The U.S. may be sending a battery of Patriot missiles to Ukraine. It comes after Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky recently put pressure on Western leaders to provide more advanced weapons to counter Russian air attacks. We will look at a full spectrum of security assistance uh, and defensive capabilities that are available within our common inventories uh, when we consider Ukraine's needs. We continue to consult and advise our Ukrainian partners on how best to integrate their air defense systems. According to officials who spoke on condition of anonymity, the announcement will likely follow later this week. The plan has not yet been publicly announced because the decision has not been finalized. If approved, the Patriot would be the most advanced surface-to-air missile system yet provided to Ukraine by the West. Belarus remains noncommittal about getting involved in the war in neighboring Ukraine, but the country appears to be conducting joint military training with Russia. Moscow says the exercise is carried out, quote, day and night. Russia's defense ministry published the latest video. The footage shows tanks navigating through a woodland in Belarus. The soldiers set up temporary bridges and conduct explosive drills. One day before the video came out, Belarus announced an emergency military inspection. It involved setting up readiness in the south of the country. Belarus has said it won't join Russia's attack in Ukraine, but on February 24th, the president allowed Russian troops to push into Ukraine from Belarusian territory. And in October, he ordered domestic forces to deploy with Russia near the Ukrainian border. Strategy analysts say there is a possibility that Belarus could intervene from the north, but that it would amount to a distraction for Ukraine. Denmark's Social Democratic leader, Meta Fredriksson, said on Tuesday she agreed to form a rare bipartisan government. It will include the main opposition party, the Liberal Party, and the moderates to form a government with her as prime minister. The three party leaders will host a press briefing today when they will outline the broad political ideas behind the next government. The moderates is a new party. It became Denmark's third biggest party after an election campaign. Fredriksson will start her second term as premier of the Nordic nation once the new government has been formally announced. She dropped negotiations with traditional left-leaning allies once her center-left Social Democratic Party won more than a quarter of the votes in the general election. Instead, she negotiated with opposition parties to form a government across the traditional left-right divide for the first time in more than four decades. A French court said on Tuesday all eight defendants on trial over a 2016 truck rampage in the city of Nice were guilty for their roles in the crime. 86 people were killed. Attacker Mohamed Lohej Bahel was shot dead by police on the spot after causing devastation on a two-kilometer stretch of Nice's Seaside Boulevard where families had been celebrating Bastille Day. The court found Mohamed Grahab, the main defendant and a friend of Bahel, guilty of belonging to a terrorist organization. He was handed an 18-year prison sentence. The court also found two other defendants guilty of helping Bahel to obtain weapons and the truck. 
A German tax lawyer has been jailed for his role in what could be one of the country's biggest post-war frauds. The scheme, known as Cumex, deprived the country of more than $1 billion in tax revenue. Hanno Berger is the most high-profile professional convicted for the tax evasion scandal. According to prosecutors in the German city of Bonn, Berger allegedly helped investment bankers swap shares between 2007 and 2011. They managed to collect multiple tax reimbursements for taxes they only paid once. Berger was arrested in Switzerland last year and extradited to Germany in February. The court found him guilty of aggravated tax evasion and sentenced him to eight years in prison. The former lawyer was also ordered to pay back nearly $130,000. He also faces a second criminal trial in another city next year. New Zealand has just banned the next generation from purchasing tobacco products ever. The country passed a package of new anti-smoking laws yesterday. The suite of new laws is among the strictest in the world. It includes prohibiting sales of tobacco to anyone born on or after January 1st, 2009. That's punishable by fines of nearly 100,000 U.S. dollars. The legislation also reduces the amount of nicotine allowed in smoked tobacco products and it cuts the number of retailers able to sell tobacco by 90%. It will drop from 6,000 to 600 by the end of 2023. New Zealand already boasts low adult smoking rates, but the government hopes to make the country smoke-free by 2025. And still to come, scientists are trying to extend the life of produce and help prevent food waste. A small packet that can slow the ripening of apples could be part of the answer. Flying robots picking fruit? Yep, an Israeli startup produces flying robots which can identify ripe fruit and harvest them. Stay tuned for more on that when we return. Good to have you back with us. Agricultural tech companies are trying to extend the life of produce and help prevent food waste. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details on staying fresh. Scientists at Chicago-based Hazel Technologies have created a small packet that can slow the ripening of apples. It works by inhibiting a naturally occurring hormone called ethylene. Produce releases a hormone called ethylene which promotes ripening and the development of sugars and all the things that we associate with it tasting good. And what we do as a company is develop packaging materials or other technology that helps utilize that basic chemistry and extend the shelf life. Wittenbach Orchards in Michigan has started using the product. It's part of an arsenal of techniques that also include temperature control and oxygen deprivation. These methods keep apples as fresh as possible even many months after harvest. We've demonstrated with the data that you can just pop this in, whether it's naked in the box, which would be just the fruit in the box, or whether there's some type of packaging, this will work with both of those situations. Elizabeth Pauls is a fifth generation apple grower at Wittenbach. Each fall, she says workers at Wittenbach Orchards pick an average of 6.5 million pounds of apples. The plan wasn't to store, you know, all year at all. The goal was probably three, maybe six months, but they were a long ways from that when we started out. Paul says these techniques are a must as consumers demand fresh, crisp apples year-round. 
they need different things. We can't just all shove them in the same room and say, you'll be great for a year. You have to do things, use technology like Hazel to take care of that fruit. Eventually, Hazel Technology says its packets could go right into grocery packaging. The company is also working on home products to extend the life of many types of produce. They could help consumers keep apples, grapes, kiwis, peaches, and avocados fresh for longer. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Robots are a common sight on industrial production lines, but they're also increasingly in demand for agriculture. Now an Israeli startup is offering a set of robots that can harvest fruit and they can fly. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. Israeli startup Tevel has developed flying robots that can pick fruit autonomously. It could be a glimpse into the future. They are driven by a sophisticated software, machine vision. Data streaming came from a surrounded 3D cameras in the system, in the, in the robots. And they're taking a lot of decisions. What is the fruit? What is the forage? How to access the fruit? If it's ripe, not ripe. The buzz of flying robots reverberates in a mock orchard bursting with fake apples. The robots fly around and pick fruit straight off the trees before depositing it in a bin. That makes life easier for farmers, and the machines don't need brakes. We can walk uh, also at night. Uh, the robots equipped with uh, uh, small uh, LEDs that illuminate the, the trees and the environment. They can walk also at night. Actually, they can walk 24-7. According to the Israeli startup, the machines could cut food prices and be more cost-effective. Our flying autonomous robots, we call it FAR, they are small, agile, and cost-effective uh, robots. They fly, they equip with a gentle gripper that holds very gently the fruit uh, with no bruising. They have uh, four motors and driven by control algorithms that enable access uh, every fruit of the tree. The robots are already paired with farmers in orchards in Italy and the U.S. There's a, a great in, uh, increase in the interest in um, agriculture technology and the investment is um, growing very rapidly. So going from 2025, the investment is expected to grow by around 20% to 2026. But these robots won't replace all farm workers just yet. Researchers say the technology would need to be more robust and inexpensive. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. In Amsterdam, a special collection of diamonds debuted at a luxury jewelry show. They're engraved with what's claimed to be the world's smallest work of art on a diamond. This limited edition collection contains 13 diamonds, each with a unique work of art. Among them is a 2.75 carat crown jewel and the remaining 12 diamonds of one carat each. The series embodies a collaboration between high-end jewelry brand Trophy by Hassan and artist Pablo Luker. The artist explains that besides excellent polish and symmetry, these diamonds boast some impressive details. For me as an artist, like uh, it's very, very uh, important that uh, because it's so small, uh, that the shape is uh, immediately recognizable. So that's why I also choose to create like 13 unique hearts. So when you see it at first sight, you see a heart, but if you look closer, you're going to see the world in the heart. I think that's also uh, in life, like every Every heart is different, every love is different, and that's why I created uh, the 13 unique hearts. For Trophy by Hassan, working with artists is a new frontier. All the diamonds in the collection are HRD certified, which also covers the art engraved on the diamond surface. On the first day of the show, two of the 12 one-carat diamonds were sold, 
at a list price of around $30,000. The larger crown jewel was tagged with the eye-watering price of $130,000. And still to come, a shop in Switzerland brings Christmas cheer with its handmade decorations. Customers from around the world visit the festive establishment. And Bethlehem prepares for tourists as Christmas approaches. Locals say business is picking up with Christians visiting the ancient birthplace of Jesus. We'll be back with more soon here on NTD News. An amazing discovery was found at the bottom of Norway's largest lake. Researchers found a downed ship believed to be from between the 1300s to the 1800s. Somehow, despite the passage of time, the craft managed to stay in almost perfect condition. The discovery was made while the Norwegian Defense Research Establishment was leading a mission that inspected parts of the lake that's a source of water for about 100,000 residents. Officials say it appears the ship was built using a Norse technique, which was common during the Viking Age. A shop in northwest Switzerland is bringing Christmas cheer to locals and visitors alike. The establishment sells a variety of Christmas decorations, and business is already booming. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more. (laughs) Johan Wanner is the world's biggest purveyor of handmade Christmas decorations. His shop in the Swiss city of Basel attracts customers from around the world. Wanner appreciates his customers and believes his products bring joy during these turbulent times. It's something which is not necessary, but it's something very important. I think people need it. It's, I need it too. And I need my customers. And they do, they do come and help me. 54 years running. The shop delivers to big companies in New York, London, Paris, Rome, China, and Japan. Warner says he had around 300 customers buy something last Saturday alone. Like most businesses, Warner had to slightly increase his prices by around 3 to 5 percent. But the energy crisis hasn't impacted production quite yet. I think the business is quite good now, and people are, after these years of uh, closing down, uh, people are ready to, to come out and to invest, invest in Christmas ornaments. Sandra Takai is a tourist from Philadelphia shopping at the store. She said she was going to spend a little more on Christmas this year. Life is short, and I just want the happiness. Not, not you know, big things, but again, mostly for my family, mostly for the grandchildren. I just want that happiness so they'll remember. For a local shopper, the decorations are about cheering up people who pass by her house. I feel kind of sad that no more people are going to decorate their homes, so I just try to decorate mine to the people who walk by and see maybe have some, some smiling on their faces. Now, all these customers have to do is trim the tree and scramble to finish their Christmas shopping. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Christmas business is back in Bethlehem. Locals say tourism hasn't fully recovered from the pandemic lockdowns, but it's looking optimistic. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on this part of the Holy Land. According to Christian Gospel, Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem more than 2,000 years ago. Churches and pilgrimage sites have popped up as religious tourism has evolved over the centuries. But when the pandemic crippled air travel, money stopped flowing to the communities dependent on religious tourists. 
Here in this city, there is an expression. This is a city of pilgrims. At the moment, we don't have pilgrims coming and visiting the city and the holy places in Bethlehem, for example, the Church of the Nativity and Shepherd's Fields, or other places. The city became a city of ghosts. This December, tourists from Asia, Europe, Africa, and North and South America are all exploring the city. Vendors say numbers are lower than pre-pandemic levels, but looking hopeful. Elias Arja is the head of the Bethlehem Hotel Association. He says hotels are full for the holidays, and that next year is expected to be even better. After Corona, when it was shuttered for two years, business has changed for the better. We expect that 2023 will be booming and business will be excellent because the whole world, and Christian religious tourists especially, all want to return to the Holy Land and visit us. Visit the Church of the Nativity, the Holy Sepulchre, and Al-Aqsa, an antiquity site. Basam Giacaman is the third generation owner of a gift shop. He says recent violence across the West Bank hasn't impacted tourist numbers. To look at it does affect, but nothing major. And, and anyway, we've had it since Warna about 60, 70 years, uh, kind of goes on for a month and then it stops. Tourists come back again, you know? Gia Common says it will take years to overcome the impact of the pandemic lockdowns. The year before the corona, um, I was doing okay, but because the corona happened, it really set me back, like five years at least, to where I was. He used to employ 10 people. Now he can only afford three to five, depending on demand. But he and many others are hopeful as business picks up. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. A NASA rover on Mars by chance had its microphone on when a whirling tower of red dust passed overhead last year. The rover caught the sound and scientists released the first of its kind audio Tuesday. The 10 second clip includes not only rumbling gusts of up to 25 miles per hour, but the pinging of hundreds of dust particles against the rover. It sounds a lot like dust devils here on Earth, that just quieter. That's because the thin atmosphere on Mars makes for muted sounds and less forceful wind. Perseverance provided the first sounds of Mars wind soon after landing in February last year. Christmas came a little early at the Toledo Zoo in the form of twin polar bear cubs. The two were born December 1st to their 24-year-old mother, Crystal. The babies aren't old enough to be introduced to the public yet, but you can watch them on the zoo's live stream every day. When fully grown, these tiny cubs could weigh as much as 1,300 pounds. The polar bear population is decreasing, but the breeding program in Toledo offers hope for the vulnerable species. And that's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.